It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. So I glanced out the window this morning, saw this very light coating of white stuff on the tree branches. And I said, what is that? It turned out to be snow. Not enough snow to, not even an inch of snow. But here it is, February 1st, and most of the East Coast hasn't gotten any real snow. I'm not losing any sleep over that, not having to dig out the driveway. I'm sure kids are disappointed uh, that they haven't been able to get out the sleds and all that. But uh, it has been an odd weather season so far. Uh, so I'm glad this happened uh, soon after I got up and not when I have to go back and stick it into the podcast. But Tom Brady says he's retiring for good. Uh, he released this video, just wearing sort of a great T-shirt and said, uh, you know, um, you only get one super emotional retirement announcement. And I used mine up last year. I think that was very insightful on his part because everyone went crazy when he retired and then he unretired. And this is his way of saying, and I would have thought he would have taken a little longer. You know, I mean, his season just ended a couple of weeks ago, ended badly in terms of that blowout loss with the Tampa Bay Bucks. But you got to say, I mean, this guy, and I've certainly rooted against him when he has played teams that I like, you know, greatest NFL quarterback of all time, or some say greatest NFL football player of all time, given all the championships he's won, all the Super Bowl rings, uh, all the great comebacks. Um, I'd have a hard time arguing with any of that. I mean, you, you know, different players, different eras. You can go back and look at uh, Joe Montana or, uh, you know, the Miami Dolphins unbeaten season and all of that. But in terms of consistently playing at a championship level for such a long period of time, which is why he's now 45 years old, and there was even a question whether he might play another season. Uh, I will uh, tip the hat to him. Uh, of course, the last year was hard for him because his marriage broke up and, you know, it's come in a price. There's a movie opening that he's uh, 80 for Brady that he's in and maybe a producer of. So maybe the, the uh, release of that video was not entirely coincidental. Um, CNN, so there's a new leak out saying that Chris Licht would like to hire Gail King uh, for CNN. Um, of course, they worked together on CBS This Mornings. But the little flaw in that plan is that Gail King renewed her contract with CBS early last year. Uh, so this was reported by Puck. It just seems to me that everything that Licht wants to do, or the pie-in-the-sky stuff, you know, he wants to get Jon Stewart, and then he doesn't get him. It just makes him look weak. I don't know why all this stuff is leaking out. I mean, there's some chatter in this uh, story, or generated by this story, that Gail King would have two jobs. You know, she would stay with CBS in the morning, as she's contractually obligated to do, but also, what, be a primetime host for CNN? That's a tough work schedule. Um, but nevertheless, that's what's floating out there. I mean, the example that's often given is Anderson Cooper, who works for both CNN and CBS. But Anderson Cooper occasionally does 60-minute stories with the help of, you know, a huge support team at CBS. Okay, Nikki Haley is going to get into the presidential race. It looks like she will be the first to take on Donald Trump, former South Carolina governor, of course, former U.N. ambassador. 
Now, this is a leak where she's not doing it right away, but she, it's a leak of the intention to do it. The um, Post and Courier in Charleston was the first to break this, saying that she will officially announce her run in Charleston on February 15th, so that's two weeks from now. Now, everything I've been reading up until now has been like, well, there's no sense in any of the Republicans getting in and getting beaten up by Trump. Now, like, wait six months. Uh, why have, you know, your face used for uh, boxing practice? What advantage is there? Well, the only advantage I see for Nikki Haley is that she's probably seen as a somewhat cautious figure, and he or she would be, you know, proving that she's not afraid of Donald Trump, that she's willing to take the bold step of being the first to put on, lace up the gloves and step into the arena with him. But, you know, that lasts about two days, and then you're in the arena with him. I'm not saying that, I mean, I think she could be potentially a strong candidate. Um, but, you know, just a couple of days ago, I remember seeing the story like they're all going to get in at the same time and that's going to be safety in numbers. But I guess they didn't get everybody to sign on to that. As an example of what Trump uh, does when he is going after you, here is, um, he's been totally going after Ron DeSantis. That's hardly breaking news. But a lot of Truth Social posts and the latest one is the real Ron is a rhino globalist, well, that's a dirty word in Republican circles, who closed quickly down Florida and even its beaches, loved the vaccines, and wasted big money on testing. How quickly people forget. Uh, let's just say that the former president is kind of twisting the record of the Florida governor, who, yes, took some steps when coronavirus first struck, but by and large, and having the benefit of being in a warm weather state, you know, did not go anywhere near as far as a lot of other states, which went into full lockdown mode. So Trump's trying to sort of rewrite that history, and I, hardly shocking. Uh, here's the political piece, speaking of Trump, about fundraising. Uh, he's not off to a great start. Um, his PAC has raised just under $5 million in the last month of last year. Uh, he spent a lot of money raising that money because you got to spend money to get people to donate. Um, so his campaign now is reporting only $3 million cash on hand compared to $19 million that he had the same time in 2020. Okay, but that's a ridiculous comparison. In, in 2020, he was the incumbent president of the United States. You almost had to give to him. And it was seemed like, certainly at this stage of the game, uh, a pretty... Uh, Sure thing that he would not only be the nominee, but you know that he had a good shot at getting reelected. Nevertheless, uh, the I won't even call it shadow boxing at this point. The 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 boxing has begun, so we'll see what happens with Nikki. Okay, before we get down to complete business, I got to talk about George Santos. So I was able to get it into yesterday's podcast at the last minute that he has decided to step down or step aside from his two committee assignments. Now, looking at it with a little bit more knowledge, I saw Kevin McCarthy interviewed who said, yes, he had met with Santos yesterday and he thought that was an appropriate decision on the freshman congressman's part. And he told Santos that, which I translating from the Diplo speak is, I told him this was untenable. He had to do something. It'd be great if he could just take himself off the committees and I'll go out and say that I approve of that. And of course, it quickly leaked. Um, 
so, you know, Santos's line is like, you know, well, and it's all, you know, when the dust settles, I'll go back on the committees. I don't think this is ever going to settle, given all the financial problems he has. And there's a new Newsday poll out, Newsday Siena College. 78% to 13% in that Long Island district say Santos should resign. And look at this breakdown. 89% of Democrats, 72% of independents, 71% of Republicans. About a week ago, there was another poll that had 49% of Republicans saying he should quit. And I thought that was pretty bad. Now it's, you know, 7 out of 10. And by a 2 to 1 margin, those who voted for Santos said they would not have voted for him if they knew then what they know now. And then he gave this interview to OAN, which I think was supposed to be kind of a puff piece, but it got really awkward. Uh, The anchor saying, where do you draw the line between right and wrong? Is there any scenario where it's okay to lie? And Santos said, no, I think lying isn't... I don't think lying is as excusable ever, period. So he says, what I might have done during the campaign, might have done, does not reflect what's being done in this office. And um, he says, history has shown the American people can pretty much forgive anything. Oh, this is the anchor, I'm sorry, whose name is Sinclair. Uh, That starts with a sincere apology. Normally, a lot of remorse shown. Prevailing opinion is that you've not shown that. You know, I don't know what you mean by that, because I have. And the anchor says, you seem angry. I'm not angry at all. Are you sorry? I've been, I've said I was sorry many times. So he never really did the full-throated apology thing. And now he's like, well, I've, how many times do you expect me to apologize? It's just a complete and total fiasco. And I don't know what he expected to get uh, out of that sit-down. But I, I do think, at least by getting off the committees, he's, he's telegraphing to his constituents that he takes this seriously, that he's not completely ignoring this sentiment, uh, that he's not just going to do business as usual. But So that might be a smart thing. I think it's all too late, and I think he's going to have a very hard time uh, surviving these investigations into the money that went into his campaign. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com. All right, story number one. Now, this is a story that CBS broke, saying the FBI searched the Penn-Biden Center offices in mid-November. That's the University of Pennsylvania office here in Washington according to two sources familiar with the probe. After lawyers for Joe Biden found about 10 documents uh, marked classified there, going back, of course, to his VP days. Not clear whether FBI personnel found any additional classified documents. Um, So the Biden people are described as being cooperative. They're the ones that notified the Justice Department. This is an office he rarely used, a few blocks from the Capitol. But here's the thing. This is what has just driven me crazy about this Keystone Cops routine. Why didn't the Biden team reveal this? And the reason I say that is there's been weeks of criticism that there's a double standard at the Biden Justice Department. When it's Joe Biden, his people get to do the search on their own with no interference from the Federal Bureau of Investigation. And by the way, no 
warrant was needed, no court order, because the Biden people were cooperating. So if you're the Biden team, why wouldn't you want that out there? Why wouldn't you want to blunt the criticism that you are being treated differently, that there's a double standard, that you're not being held accountable the way Trump is being held accountable. And instead, once again, it's drip, 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 another news story. Remember, they sat on this for two months and really pissed off the press by, oh, here's a batch, oh, here's a second batch, oh, here's this other one over here next to the Corvette. I just, here's a, a, a detail, a fact, that if they had been a little bit more open with the public, they could have put out early. It's not going to screw up DOJ or infuriate the investigators. You're entitled to say, yeah, the FBI came in and supervised the search with our cooperation. They just don't get it. They just don't get that every time a new detail comes out that they knew about and withheld from the press, from the public, it just looks awful. I just don't understand it. Uh, a team of uh, you know pretty experienced, bright people around Biden have handled this from a PR standpoint about as badly as you could imagine, in my opinion. All right, number two. This is a smart piece in the Washington Post about COVID. I mentioned yesterday that the Biden administration had leaked that it was going to lift the public health emergency involving COVID on May 11th. And I said, I haven't had a chance to look into it, but why not do it like tomorrow? Well, the answer seems to be that there's a requirement that you give a 60-day notice to hospitals, to insurance companies, and to others so that they can prepare for a transition away from the public health emergencies. But the Republicans aren't buying that. So the way that this piece frames it is interesting. It says, for many Americans, the relentless focus on COVID seems largely a thing of the past. For a few people wearing masks, businesses and schools are mostly open. Many people have learned to live with the occasional threat of contracting the virus. But among activist Republicans, immense anger and resentment, remember I just read to you the COVID-related shot that Trump took at DeSantis, persists at government policies aimed at curbing the pandemic, such as vaccine mandates, school closures, and mask requirements. And as that anger bubbles up in the GOP House, it's becoming a, a significant part of the party's message. I think that that is true. Um, Trump accusing DeSantis of trying to rewrite history is another quote from the former president. DeSantis has styled himself as a public health dove who presided over the, quote, free state of Florida, and he's become increasingly hostile toward the coronavirus vaccines. By the way, the vaccines are still a good thing. It's still a smart thing to get them. If you get COVID, you're much less likely to have a severe case, but it doesn't protect you, obviously, from getting uh, COVID-19. Um, so here's DeSantis saying, if you take a crisis like COVID, the good thing is that people are able to render a judgment on that whether they reelect you or not. I'm happy to say in my case, we won. He's been touting his landslide victory, which of course, you know, he has every right to do. Now, House Republicans focus this week on delivering a political message. The pandemic has long been over and the Biden administration doesn't realize it. There are going to be four different votes trying to end two different coronavirus emergency declarations, lift the vaccine mandate for many healthcare workers, require federal agencies 
to reinstate their pre-pandemic uh, policies about working from home. Uh, now, you know, Elise Stefanik, Republican Congresswoman number three in the House, says this is, you know, power grab policies. I mean, they're making the case that President Biden and the Democrats love these public health emergencies because it gives them more power over the economy and health care. But it don't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter because the Senate, still controlled by Democrats, is not going to go along with these things. So it's going to be a messaging vote. There's going to be a lot of messaging votes in the House over the next two years. And by the way, a lot of people who were able to get on the Medicaid rolls with help from the federal government, it's a state program, but the funding for Medicaid has always been split between the feds and the localities, uh, are going to lose their coverage. But that's the thing about these emergency aid programs. They can't last forever, but then when you try to take it away, the proponents come back and say, well, you're going to be kicking people off. Well, you allowed them two or three years of extra benefits. You can't keep them on the Medicaid rolls forever if the states, which have to bear a share of the cost, don't want to pay it. So again, not going to change anything substantively because you got to get two houses. I remember reading about this in elementary school. Both houses have to go along to pass a law. But look, I mean, the Dems did the same thing when they had one house. You pass a lot of bills, you force a public debate, and you have the cushion or the insurance policy of the other chamber that you do control not going along, or in the worst case scenario, a presidential veto when it's the president of your party sitting in the White House. Number three, Joe Biden and Kevin McCarthy meeting today to talk about the debt ceiling. After which, each side will say, well, we had a constructive meeting, but they're still not doing what we want. And, you know, this is, as I've told you, I don't want to bore you to death with this debt ceiling stuff. It's interesting politically in a way. But this is going to go on until June when the real deadline is going to happen, where the U.S. government will really face a default. Kevin McCarthy is a smart politician. He doesn't want that. But what he is saying is let's negotiate about spending cuts. And Biden is saying no way. So this is interesting, the way this framed in this New York Times piece. Republicans have insisted they want structural fiscal changes in exchange for voting to raise the borrowing cap. But they have so far declined to offer a cohesive plan outlining what programs they would cut. So that happens to be the White House line that's been embraced now in this New York Times piece. Well, you know, if they're so hot on spending cuts, then, you know, come out and give us your budget. Put the spending cuts on the table. You know, the Republicans don't want to do that, at least not at this early stage. Um, the political challenge the Republicans face is they try to wield the specter of a default to extract concessions from President Biden and Democrats. So that's completely adopting the Biden line, which has not been a secret. The president and his people have been saying this quite publicly. In the meantime, U.S. has already exceeded, at least technically, the $31 trillion debt limit. And the Treasury Department is sort of like moving, uh, you know, shells around to try to find the money to pay the bills, which has happened before in one of these brinksmanship showdowns. $31 trillion. That's how much we owe. And the reason that's scandalous and we're just sort of passing on these debts to the next generation is... An increasing share of the budget of what your tax dollars go to is to pay the debt, is to pay interest on the debt. 
for, for these tens of trillions that the U.S. has already borrowed. Okay, so guess who gets quoted in this piece? Brian Deese, director of White House National Economic Council. Oh, they put out a memo. He was one of the signers saying uh, it is essential that Speaker McCarthy likewise commit to releasing a budget so that the American people can see how House Republicans plan to reduce the deficit. Well, the State of the Union is next week. That'll be followed by President Biden's budget. He, as the commander-in-chief, has a responsibility to put out a budget, often with a divided Congress. It's declared to be dead on arrival or whatever. Uh, at a fundraiser yesterday, Biden called McCarthy a decent man, but said that he had to cater to the hardliners in his party by offering off-the-wall concessions. Look, this is not your father's Republican Party, says Joe. I mean it. This is a different breed of cat. McCarthy accused Biden of being irresponsible by saying he was unwilling to seek common ground over the debt ceiling. Why would you put the economics of America in jeopardy? Why would you play political games? I'm not. So this is going to be a lot of finger pointing. No, you're playing games. No, you're playing games. Uh, McCarthy knows what he's doing. He doesn't, he's not going to allow a default in the end. Republicans would bear the brunt of that, just as they, they bore the brunt of past government shutdowns. But he also says, oh, Mitch McConnell comes in. And he says, look, I'm going to leave it to Kevin and Joe because, you know, we're going to, you know, since he, he's a minority leader, he says, we'll have to swallow whatever they can put together. But McConnell does point out it's not unprecedented to have a discussion about spending in connection with the debt ceiling. The president knows full well, since he was my negotiating partner years ago, that this has been done before. I think a deal has to be cut between the House majority and the Democratic president. Um, so Mitch and Joe sat down and hammered out a compromise uh, some years ago in a similar circumstance. So nobody has clean hands here. You know, the Republicans were perfectly happy to have three so-called clean debt ceiling bills, meaning, you know, no amendments, you don't screw around with it, three times when Donald Trump was president. Now suddenly it's like, oh, hold on. We're not just going to give this away. There's got to be spending cuts. And again, you know, I can't take this too seriously. Yes, the stakes are high. Yes, we're looking at a potential default. No, a default won't happen in the end. And these just, things just get so tedious. But I wanted to give you the background of understanding why each party is maneuvering the way it is. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. So story number four, this is interesting, a, a little bit of a Washington Post scoop here. A new internal report prepared by the Republican National Committee proposes creating a permanent infrastructure in every state. Hold on, this is not about infrastructure like what Biden announced yesterday in New York, you know, a new Hudson River tunnel. It's going to cost about $300 million. This is a different kind of infrastructure. To ramp up, quote, election integrity activities in response to perceptions within GOP ranks of widespread fraud and abuse in the way the country selects its leaders. The report, prepared by the RNC's National Election Integrity Team, obtained by the Washington Post, shows how Republicans continue to trade on Donald Trump's false claims that Democrats and their allies rigged his defeat in 2020. So whether this reflects the continuing clout of the former president or concern about whether there might be uh, unfair advantages going to the Dems in the next election, that's this report. 
It involves having state-level election integrity officers, intensive new training for poll workers, and as the Post puts it, all based on unsubstantiated claims that Democrats have implemented election procedures that allow for rigged votes. Well, there have been a lot of lawsuits on this, and it hasn't been proven. The report concludes the party must continue building on efforts begun after, um, I guess talking here about the uh, Georgia runoffs not last time, but in 2021, when the Democrats were able to get 50-50 control of the Senate. Um, But instead of combating misinformation about fraud, the report encourages the recruitment of staff and volunteers to monitor elections and development of more aggressive legal strategies to, quote, hold election officials accountable for violating the law. Now, if read one way, you could say, look, they're just exercising their rights. They want to make sure that they don't get hosed in the next election. There's nothing wrong with that. If you look at it another way, it is sort of catering to the MAGA base that the election um, was stolen, which, of course, raises the question of whether Joe Biden was the legitimately elected president of the United States in 2020, which I don't consider an open question. Um, If there is corruption, having Republicans in the system will expose many issues. Also, Republicans have to get in the game when it comes to early voting and absentee voting and so forth. In too many instances, they've just punted. And that does give the Democrats an advantage, but it's a fair advantage. I mean, if, I mean, there, you know, even before Donald Trump, there are a bunch of states that have allowed for early voting and pretty liberal use of absentee voting. So if the Republicans want to be huffy about it and say, well, we're not going to participate in that, they're kind of tying their own hands behind their back. But here's the sort of semi-denial. In a statement, the RNC called the report an early draft document that reflects contributions only from a small number of RNC staff. So they're saying, look, this isn't permanent. It's just a few people. Um, That sounds to me like damage control because I would bet the odds are this report, and it's just a report, is ultimately uh, going to be adopted or some version of it. But obviously somebody within the RNC wanted this out or it wouldn't be in the hands of the Washington Post. So either because they thought this is the wrong way to go or to build support for it, I don't know. You know the, assessing the motives of leakers when you don't know who the leakers are is always a challenging task. Okay, number five, fascinating piece by Ezra Klein about bookstores. And this touched a nerve with me because bookstores used to be a big part of my life as for many, many people. So he starts off by saying, uh, I remember when Barnes & Noble first opened in my hometown. Before that, we had a cramped Crown Books and some lovely but limited libraries. Barnes & Noble was a revelation, says Ezra. There was something wondrous about a room with that many books, each of them a doorway to unknown worlds, ideas, and lives. That's still the feeling for me of walking into a great bookstore, limitless. I was, as you might suspect, a bookish and awkward child. My father began taking me to Barnes & Noble three, often four nights a week. That was the lure of Barnes & Noble for me. It wasn't so much a place to buy books as a place to be among them for as long as you wanted. Unlike Crown, Barnes & Noble had space to sit and it seemed to want you to sit there. 
Unlike the library, it was open till 9, sometimes till 10. Now, I probably wasn't quite as nerdy as Ezra. I was more into comic books. This is before the advent of graphic novels, uh, both drawing my own self-created character comic books and reading uh, the latest Spider-Man, Fantastic Four, Hulk, on and on, you name it, X-Men. So, but I remember in college and as a young adult out of college, I loved going to the bookstore, and then when I had kids, I took my kids to the bookstore, and they would sit in the children's section, and, you know, it was a thing to do, especially in the winter when it was cold. And there was, everybody in the Washington area knows this, it was a Barnes & Noble in Bethesda, Maryland, that not only was it just a fabulous piece of real estate, and by the way, you know, there would be a cafe in there, and they started selling DVDs, and then they expanded into, you know, you could listen to the sample of the music. This is all before we're all rocking around with phones that give us everything instantaneously. And it seemed to me that it was just a fun place to be. And what I was going to say about the Bethesda is that there was a, a, a fountain outside, and, and in nicer weather, it was just a huge gathering place, and there's a guy who sold ices. So a lot of the social life, you know, especially for parents with young kids, but just also just for younger people and some older people, revolved around going to this particular Barnes & Noble. But then things changed, as you know, and that we get into this Ezra essay in the New York Times. Um, commerce started moving online. A Barnes & Noble store was large, but Amazon selection was endless. E-readers made questions of distance and delivery obsolete. I could download anything I wanted at 11.30 p.m., he says, because I couldn't sleep, and surely this one book would calm my nerves. And the chain bookstores were becoming something else. Toy stores, DVD hawkers, and in a particularly weird bid to save the business, restaurants. I don't think it was that weird. Go get some deed, and then maybe you buy a book. Anyway, I love Barnes & Noble, but I was helping to kill it. Why? Because he wasn't going to Barnes & Noble anymore. He's downloading stuff onto his e-reader from Amazon. Then he says he moved to San Francisco, had kids, and the pandemic came. And he says, there's no joy sitting next to your child when you order children's books on Amazon. Uh, there was no Barnes & Noble in the city. That's amazing to me. It's San Francisco. But there was one uh, about 20, 30 minutes away south. I found myself playing out my own childhood in reverse, taking my kids there, day after day, so they'd have a place to sit and play and exist among books during the pandemic. It turns out Barnes & Noble had an excellent pandemic. Good bookstores thrive, bad bookstores die. And he interviews the CEO of Barnes & Noble, who says that the reason a lot of bookstores died is they failed to defend themselves against Amazon, and they just weren't good enough. They failed to defend themselves against Kindle. Uh, a great bookstore, in the view of the CEO, reflects the community in which it exists. So a Barnes & Noble next to a church is going to be different than one down the street from a high school in terms of uh, what books you display and what kind of you know audience you're trying to appeal to. And so Barnes & Noble now is having a bit of a comeback and is opening more stores. Um, you know, will that last as the pandemic continues to fade? I don't know. But, there, you know, it's the same feeling for me. 
It's kind of a raw feeling. And I contributed too because, you know, it became more of a pain to get in the car and go and sit in a bookstore when you could just go ping, ping, ping on your phone and the book from Amazon would arrive the next day or the day after that and often at lower prices. Can't leave that out of the equation. But I kind of miss bookstores and maybe I'll start going to them more often. Uh, I mean, some of the ones that I used to frequent have closed. One in Union Station in Washington. Uh, you know, I, would, I would walk over there, get lunch. And this is what wasn't necessarily traveling on the train. And pop into the Barnes & Noble. And other chains like Borders went bankrupt. So, you know, you could say, well, this is the way of the world. And, you know, e-commerce is more convenient. You don't have to worry about parking and all of that. But there is something about not just reading books, but being among books. I think Ezra has a really good point. Maybe some of you didn't have any of these feelings growing up and you much prefer to go to ball games, which I did also, or other ways of passing the time. Uh, going to shopping malls seems to be big now. There aren't as many shopping malls as there used to be, and there aren't as many uh, malls with great stores in them as things close down and people use e-commerce. But also a good place to take your kids and, you know, you buy them one toy and you go to the food court and it's a way of spending time. So maybe as, you know, maybe we all got kind of wrapped up in the idea of having to survive in our houses because if you went out, it was dangerous. You had to wear a mask and all that. But I think we're out of that era now. Uh, and so maybe shopping malls and bookstores can, you know, they're not going to replace e-commerce, but maybe they can find a spot alongside uh, ordering stuff on your phone. Didn't know I was going to go into this long spiel about it, but thank you for listening. I always appreciate your time here. That's what it's about, time. You can do other things when you listen to a podcast, but you also are committing some of your very valuable time. Uh, if you haven't already subscribed to our fast-growing podcast, Amazon Music is a place to do it. I, this is just me talking. I don't get there's no paid political announcement here because you can get it without the ads. Same thing on Apple iTunes. And I will see you all tomorrow with more BuzzMeter. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. The Will Cain Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox & Friends weekend host Will Cain as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts.